Or let us ask the Lord's uh, light this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we do ask you to open our eyes to help us to see Jesus and to see his glory. To see his glory and his work on the cross. O Spirit of God, uh, fill our hearts and help us to grasp and embrace and embody and live out of the words of life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 23, uh, verses, uh, verse 34, just one verse this morning. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. These are the last words of David. These are the last words of David. You want to know what follows that, don't you? It immediately triggers in your mind a level of curiosity. What were the last words of David? You want to hear those words because last words have significance. They have meaning. And a lot of that is because of when they are spoken, right? This moment that is absent, that is void of frivolity, of triviality. Last words are words of significance. I googled that, famous last words of people and various things came up in that. I don't know whether these are even true or they're purported to be people's last words. Winston Churchill said, I'm so bored with it all. Joe DiMaggio apparently said, I finally get to see Marilyn again. Gustav Mahler, the composer, was apparently conducting an orchestra, an imaginary orchestra, at death and cried out but one word, Mozart, in an exclamation. Leonardo da Vinci proclaimed, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And the famed uh, prognosticator, Nostradamus, well, unsurprisingly, he made a prediction. He said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And he was right. Last words have power, don't they? You want to listen to last words as they are spoken. They are words of significance. And how much more should that be so when it comes to the last words of your Lord and Savior, the last words of Jesus Christ? This morning, I'm beginning a seven-part series as we enter in soon into the Lenten season up into uh, Palm Sunday, a seven-part series on the seven sayings of our Savior on the cross. In other words, a sermon series on our Savior's last words, the things He said while they were crucifying Him, the things He said before He died. And first, among those last words were these, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I want you to think about those words. I want you to contemplate those words. I want you to meditate on them. 
on the gravity of them, on the depth of them, on the significance of them, because I want you to see, and throughout this whole series, what I have as a goal is for you to behold the glory of Christ. To behold the glory of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king as he was living out of those threefold offices in the crucifixion on the cross. I want you to see the glory of Christ in His last words. So this morning, let's look at these last words of Jesus. Three things I want you to see this morning about these words. The first is the subject of His words. The second is the object of His words. And third are the grounds of His words. The subject of His words, the object of His words, the grounds for His words. Let's look at these three things. Let's see the glory of Christ together. First, we have the subject of His words. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. The seven sayings of our Lord, they commence with mercy. They commence with forgiveness. Christ speaking those words, Father, forgive. Forgiveness is the subject of His last words. First and foremost in the mind of our Savior was forgiveness. But did you notice something curious about the words? How Jesus phrases that call for forgiveness curious about how he phrases it. Father, forgive. Father comes first. The first word is Father. Father, forgive. If you remember that story in Mark chapter 2, when the guys there have their friend who was paralyzed, and they're bringing him to Peter's house, and they bring him and they put him down through the roof. They, why are they doing that? They want him to be healed, of course. Jesus is a miracle worker. So they put this guy down through the roof. And what does Jesus do? They bring him there for healing. And the first thing Jesus says to him is that your sins are forgiven, Mark 2.5. They didn't bring him there for that. They brought him there to be healed. And Jesus says at that moment in time, recognizing what's going on, He says, what is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? And then Jesus heals the man as well. And He proclaims this in Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus says, but I want you to know, I did this because I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So do you see what's curious about what Jesus says on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. Why doesn't Jesus just say, I forgive you? He has authority to forgive sins. He's proclaimed it about Himself. Yet in this moment, on the cross, Jesus begins with Father. He begins with intercession with His Father. Why is that? It's because His hour has come. His ministry has changed. He is now taking upon the role of the Lamb of God. He is now taking upon the role as the great High Priest. He is now taking on the role of intercessor for people. Advocating before the Father. And so He proclaims here to His Father, 
Father, forgive them. Arthur Pink, in his little book, which is actually a great little book on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, he talks about that fact that Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins, and he notes that in this moment, during the crucifixion, Jesus was no longer on earth but hung suspended between earth and heaven. And in that moment, he cries out in intercession, beginning the work that would be fully realized after his ascension. He's proclaiming, he's doing this work of intercession for transgressors. And so he says, Father, forgive. Do you see the glory of your Lord? The glory of Christ our Savior. What's first and foremost in his mind? There's much debate in, around today, around atonement theory. There's a lot of debate going on around that in recent years. Criticism of kind of the evangelical wing of the church that has been maybe overly myopic with the idea of public uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Right, That atonement is about... The fact that Jesus' death was a payment of a debt for transgressors, that it was a satisfaction of divine justice. And I understand some of that critique. Because the atonement is certainly more than that. It's more capacious, it's more glorious. There are more aspects and strands of the atonement than just penal substitutionary atonement. But there is certainly not less than that. Because on the cross, in that moment when Jesus is there, the first thing He does is speak to the very need of sinful human beings. The need to be forgiven. Father, forgive them. He was on the cross because of human offense. Because of rebellion against God. He was there because of our sinfulness. And so the first thing He says is, Father, forgive them. Paul, writing about the cross in Colossians 3, 13 and 14, proclaimed, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away. How did He take it away? He nailed it to the cross. By nailing it to the cross, he was dealing with sin. And so his first words are these. Father, forgive. The subject of his words was forgiveness. Because that is central to our faith. Central to our hope. It's why we proclaim it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because in that is our hope. The subject of His words, was forgiveness. Secondly, the object of His words. The object of His words. He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The subject was forgiveness. The object was then. Now, who is the them in this text? Who is He forgiving when He says, Father, forgive them? Was it the Romans? Was it the religious leaders that were there? Was it the whole entire crowd? Who were the them? Who were the object of His forgiveness? 
It was his enemies. It was his enemies, those who opposed him. Jesus interceded. He made intercession for his enemies. Fleming Rutledge put it this way, Jesus does not pray for the good and the innocent. He prays for people doing terrible things. He prays for men who are committing sadistic acts, offering them to his Father's mercy. Christ prayed for his enemies. They are the them in that moment. They are the object of his words and of his prayer. Jesus prayed for his enemies. Do you? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for them? Because you have the them in your life. Because I know, because I have the them in my life. We all have them. And we live evermore in a culture that is very comfortable with the categories of us and them. Jesus prayed for them. Our inclination is to pray for us. To pray for our crowd, right? Our tribe, our people. Jesus prayed for them, His enemies. Do you pray for the them in your lives and you all have You all have them. But do you pray for them? Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here on the cross, Jesus is practicing what He preached. He's living it out in an example for us because He wants us to imitate and to follow Him in praying for them. Do you pray for them? And really, it's a question about whether you practice forgiveness. Are you able to do that? Are you able to forgive others? Are you able to forgive others even when they hurt you in a variety of ways? Anne Lamott said this about forgiveness. Forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. Can you do that? Forgiveness is not easy. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. That's true, isn't it? It's a great abstract concept, forgiveness. But when someone hurts you, when someone persecutes you, when someone comes after you, the them, forgiveness is hard. Here on the cross, Jesus prays for His enemies. He prays for them. Do you pray for them? And here's an even more penetrating question for you. Something that goes deeper to each and every one of our hearts. And it's the question this. Do you realize that you are the enemy? That in the divine economy, you are the them. Do you realize that? Do you accept that truth about yourself? There's that great old hymn, right? That great old Easter hymn. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed Him on the cross? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble, were you there? 
The answer is, yeah. I was there. Because I am a sinner. I am the them. Colossians 1.21, Paul declares, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, do you understand that dynamic? In the divine sense, we were all once the them. Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way, If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It cuts through your heart. It cuts through my heart. We were the them. And that means we were the object of Jesus' forgiveness when He said, Father, forgive them. He was talking about you and me. The subject of His words was forgiveness. The object of His words was you and me, the them. Thirdly, this morning, the grounds for His words. We've seen the subject of His words, the grounds of His words, now, sorry, the object of His words, and now thirdly, the grounds for His words. Jesus proclaims on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Do you see the grounds, the reason, the trigger, the cause of His forgiveness, His plea for forgiveness, why He forgave them, why He interceded for them? It's ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. That's why, right? That's the cause. That's the grounds. Why? Because they do not know what they are doing. Now, why does Jesus say that? They knew exactly what they were doing. Right? They knew exactly what they were doing. They were crucifying Him. They had no doubt what they were doing. But what way were they ignorant? John Flavel, who's a great uh, 17th century Puritan, spoke about this text in the seven sayings, in this particular saying, and he spoke about the ignorance of what Jesus talks about here and is referring to as a particular ignorance. A particular ignorance rather than a general ignorance. He, he wrote this, he said, they knew many other truths. And they weren't totally ignorant, right? They knew many other truths, but did not know Jesus Christ. Natural light they had, yes, and Scripture light they had, but in particular, Flavel writes, that this was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Therein they were blind and ignorant. They knew a lot of things. But they were ignorant about who Jesus was. They were ignorant about His true identity and His significance. They were ignorant about the one whom they were crucifying. And Scripture attests to this all over the place. 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul, speaking of the cross, said, None of the rulers of this age understood this, who He was. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glories. Theirs was a particular ignorance. They didn't understand who Jesus was. Peter, preaching to Jews on Acts, in Acts 3.17, Now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, 
as did your leaders. It was particular ignorance. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. There's also a sense where this particular ignorance is also general because before God's effectual calling, before God opens our eyes to see Jesus, all of us at one time shared in this ignorance, not knowing who Jesus is and who He was. Some of you may be living in this ignorance now. You hear about Jesus, you read about Jesus, but you don't know who He is. You have not known Him in the spiritual sense of being reborn in Christ, of having your eyes opened. And now is the time, today is the time. We all, in a sense, share in this ignorance. Paul spoke of it in himself. He said this about himself in 1 Timothy 1.13, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance. I didn't know. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know my left hand from my right hand. I didn't know right from wrong. That's all of us. We are not only the them, right? We are the ignorant. We're all born in that spiritual ignorance because the greatest of all ignorance is sin. Sin is ignorance. It's acting in rebellion against God, what's good for us, what's good for others, what's good for the world. And so to not follow God is a particular powerful form of ignorance, but Jesus forgives it. He forgives it here. They don't know what they are doing. He forgives it because Jesus is generous. Now think about this. I want you to think about this. Your God is generous. Think about how generous Jesus is. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Father, forgive my enemies, those who are persecuting me. Father, forgive those who are ignorant. Forgive them. How generous Jesus is. Instead of looking down on them, instead of despising them for their ignorance, He forgives them. They don't know what they're doing. Now what if we lived our lives that way as a church? What if we embraced and embodied Jesus' generosity to other people as He does here? What if we viewed those living contrary to God's law, not with disdain or contempt, but as those who don't know what they're doing. Right? It changes how you view them. It makes you take a generous posture towards them, a welcoming attitude. When you get down to it, what you're seeing in those you might call enemies of Christ or those who are opposing the church or Christianity or whatever you think they are, they're ignorant, right? And so our calling is one of education, not destruction. We are no longer in a culture war if we adopt this mentality. We are in a war of education, of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to show people who Jesus is. We're battling ignorance, right? 
And so we would do what? We would maybe do what Jesus told us to do. Go into all the world. Teach them all that I have commanded you. Teach them. And by the way, while you're doing that, maybe you, who claim to be my followers, maybe you'll also learn a few things along the way. Because the last time I checked, there's a lot of ignorance in the church. Spiritual ignorance about Jesus and what He's called us to do. And every time we sin, we act in ignorance. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Let's be generous like Jesus. Let's model in the church and in our Christian lives that mentality. When we encounter ignorance, show them who Jesus is. John Flavel said this, On this text, he said, How is Christ a lamb when his followers are lions? How is the church a dove that smites and scratches like a bird of prey? If your spirits be full of tumult and revenge, the Spirit of Christ will grow a stranger to you. Flavel says the way you respond to that, the way you avoid that, is by imitating Christ here on the cross. Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's the grounds. The grounds for His words was spiritual ignorance. So we've seen this morning the subject of His words is forgiveness, forgiveness of us. The object of His words is them, His enemies, which is really us. The grounds of His words was spiritual ignorance. He forgave them because they didn't know what they were doing. And once again, we recognize that in ourselves, it is us. What are these words about? They're about forgiveness, people. First words of Jesus on the cross are about the forgiveness we all need. And what we learn from this is that God, our God, our Christ is very generous. He forgives His enemies. He forgives the ignorance, the ignorant He forgives sins. He forgives sins. Thanks be to God. Right? Imagine if you had a stingy God. A God that set barriers in the forgiveness of sins. Let me close with this illustration. I read this article in the Reformed Journal by Dwayne Kelderman. And it's not so much the article itself that caught my attention, but an article he referred to in the article, and the other article was in the New York Times, and it was entitled, I Want to Be Forgiven, I Just Want to Be Forgiven. And the article in the Times told this story about the Minnesota Board of Pardons. And it told the story about how in Minnesota there's this program where if you are a convicted criminal, you can go and plead for forgiveness, to be forgiven by society. Now, remember, these people were not asking to have their sentence shortened or avoided. They had already paid and done their time. They were not looking for parole. They were already out. What they were looking for was to be forgiven of their crimes by society. And so they have to go before this panel of the governor, 
the chief justice, the attorney general, they have 10 minutes to make their case. And there are grounds that they have to achieve, hurdles they have to overcome. They have to show accountability and remorse and restitution and rehabilitation. They have to show themselves worthy of forgiveness. And it's a public hearing. They have to do it in front of everybody. Then the announcement of the verdict is made on the spot in the moment. And 17 people came forward, were allowed to try this and do this, and they pled their case, 17. And 14 of them were forgiven. But three were not. And what do you think it felt like for those three? What would it feel like if you were one of those three? The unforgiven. How would you feel in that moment? This is what the world has to offer, right? Hurdles, barriers, 10 minutes. The unforgiven. Now think of our Lord. Think about that dark Friday. Think about when the cross cast its shadow on the crowd gathered beneath Him. No one came to plead anything before Jesus, right? They weren't asking for forgiveness. They had but one plea. Crucify Him. And yet Jesus then, then, and think about the then. The then is important. Then in that very moment, in that timing, then and exactly at that then, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Arthur Pink says this about the then of that moment. He says, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. Then when man had done his worst, then when the vileness of the human heart was displayed in climactic devilry, then when with his wicked hands the creature had dared to crucify the Lord of glory, he might have uttered awful maledictions over them. He might have let loose the thunderbolts of righteous wrath and slain them. He might have caused the earth to open her mouth so that they had gone down alive into the pit, but no. Though subjected to unspeakable shame, though suffering excruciating pain, though despised, rejected, hated, nevertheless, what are his words? Father, forgive them. That's your Savior. That's the glory of the Christian religion and our faith. That is at the core of what we believe. And those are among the last words of Jesus. Listen to them. Believe them. Embrace them. If you come to Him and ask for forgiveness, He will by no means cast you away. He forgives. He forgives it all. Your sin not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Father, forgive them. He forgives you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You. We thank You for the work of our Savior, Your Son, and His intercession for us. We thank You for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank You for our great High Priest who makes intercession for us right now, just as He did on the cross. He's doing it now before Your throne, the throne of grace. Pray any who feel the burden of guilt, the burden and weight of sin will come unto you.
and no forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.